This is the coolest show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. Welcome to The Coolest Show. I am so excited for this conversation because I'm having it one in, in New Orleans and my, my home state of Louisiana. I'm having it with my brother who we were going to get into, uh, who we have been doing this work here in Louisiana and New Orleans forever. And he is none other than the amazing, uh, he's done so much. He's a producer, he's a radio host, entrepreneur. He's, he's, a, he's a gardener. <laughs> he got so many different... <laughs> hats that he wears and he's not other than wild wayne wild wayne my brother how are you what's up rev you good i'm listen before you get started i i i gotta add this into it because you know you now are the voice of the pelicans for nba 2k 2k 22 i'm assuming this is oh, this is the 2k in general but uh it's 23 is for 23 yeah 23. nba 2k 23 so 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 give me give me give me something real quick Give me if you were doing your voiceover for the Pelicans, what, what what would it sound like? Like, give me like like okay, Zion just dunked, and I know our producer Cross is an Atlanta Hawks fan, so he just dunked on Trey, right? He just, it was it was crazy. He just dunked all on Trey's head, and so so give me that. So give me that announcement right there. Zion just rocked the rim. Give it up for Zion Williamson from your New Orleans Pelicans. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I know. I know. I, I know. I produced across his Mac. I used Trey, but I, well, he, he he be okay. My brother, poor Trey, you. poor Trey. <laughs> he just got posterized. Oh. <laughs> oh man, I love it. I love it. So I just saw yesterday um, at the New Orleans commemoration for Katrina that we've been doing seventeen years. Before I get to all that. You know, Wild Wayne, for folks who don't know you, who is Wild Wayne? Uh, so there are two entities. Mm. There's Wayne Benjamin, obviously, yeah. but from the entertainment world and popularly known as Wild Wayne in the community. Uh, I've done radio at iHeartMedia, which was formerly Clear Channel Radio for many years. Uh, I've been doing radio since 1991, actually. Really? Yeah, so 30 and change, you know what I'm saying, which is crazy. Um as a since 1991, college. you know back in 91, you know we had we had different standards for radio, you know, folks had <laughs> Now you got to get on radio one way. Back then you get on radio a whole other kind of way. I mean, it was a whole Well, kind of- actually um and, and I mentioned this to you yesterday like my steps are guided because I had mm. no intention no idea, no desire even to be in radio. Mm. So I was at Xavier University, HBCU, XU, XU, Come on, come on. Shut up Uh, for the HBCUs. Right. And I was actually a biology pre-med major. Wow. Um, My desire was to be a doctor. Wow. I I didn't know that. Yeah. I wanted to go into veterinary medicine and uh, I did. Five years, got all the way up to. Now, hold on, I can just imagine if you had been, if you had been in medicine, I can imagine 
they were like, Dr. Wayne, what's going on? Well, yeah, I can see right now going to, yeah, your colon needs to come out right now. <laughs> Take the damn meds. Uh, but <laughs> so maybe my uh, sophomore year, I, I, uh, I got big balls and decided mm. I was moving to my parents' house. So I'm born and raised in New Orleans. So Xavier was our our hometown HBCU. That's right. That's right. Uh, versus me staying home, I decided I was going to get my own apartment because I was too grown and blah, 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 and not realizing how stressful it was to be a grown-up when I, I really had a good position and situation at home and uh, being on your own, and I had some very irresponsible roommates. <laughs> um, the rent was never paid. There was always an eviction notice. The water was cut off. The power was cut off. And I'm trying to go to school. I'm, you know, mm. I'm trying to be a, a college student. I'm trying to party when I can, you know what I'm saying? And uh, eventually I ended up needing to get uh, two jobs instead of wow. one to pay my, uh, you know, my living expenses. Yeah, yeah. I lost my scholarship. I went to Xavier on scholarship, academic scholarship. So I lost my scholarship because I was partying way too much. And uh so, you know, I went back home, tail between my legs. Mm. Dad, I lost my scholarship. Can you help me out with my tuition? And he was like, hell no. <laughs> like, what? He was like, you went on an academic scholarship and you blew it, so you're going to have to own this. Mm. And uh, so I needed to get another job. And then I actually had to get another job. So I had three jobs and trying to do college because I wanted to stay in school. Mm. Um, and then once my dad saw that I was serious, he chipped in somebody, refused to pay at all. He was like, you want to be grown, you're going to be grown. So um, I just started doing these jobs. I was working at the Times-Picayune, which I w was our local uh, newspaper publication. Yep. Yep. And uh, additionally, this is going to be real crazy, but I used to work at a, a video rental shop. Wow. Uh, which was originally called this crazy alfalfa video, which was bought out by a company called Blockbuster Video. Uh, which was Alf crazy. Alpha video. That's crazy. That was the original name. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I was doing that and I still really couldn't make ends meet. I had a little hoopty. I needed gas money. I was trying to be a hot boy on campus and I needed one more hustle. And a friend of mine worked at the radio station. He was doing, uh, uh, like a research department mm -hmm. that they used to do in radio, you know, where they would call out and ask you what songs you like. Yeah, and, I remember those days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what's the tired of hearing? Did you, could you recognize the hook on this record and all of this kind of shit? This was like, uh, uh, hopefully I, I could, that's all right. Well, we got uh, producer who can, we got producer who can hook, hook it out for you. Okay. And uh, <laughs> so my guy was about to take a leave of absence for AIT school which was some military stuff. So I was like, well, cool, let me hop on, get this little part-time gig while you're gone for the summer. When you come back, you'll have your job. I'll find something else. Boom, I can mm. keep rolling. But somebody got fired the day that I was starting. So I was like, well, I want the permanent spot. My homie could get his job back when yeah. he returned. And my original job was to answer the request lines. Wow. That's it. So I was... Q93, what would you like to hear? And uh, <laughs> that, that was my job. And I, I did it for a while, and I was like, this is the most boring crap ever. Uh, so, uh, and I, you know, I'm energy, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, that was yeah, like, yeah. I felt like my wings were clipped or whatever. 
So I got I started doing a show production for the night guy, a guy named Davy D. Um, not the Davy D from the Bay Area, yeah. but we had a Davy D as well. Um, and ironically, he's in Fresno now. But um, so I was shout a show out, producer. Well, shout out to both Davy D's. We know Davy D out in the Bay, but shout out to both Davy D's. Yeah, yeah, and you know he was a he was really a dynamic. DJ, he was a white guy. His energy was through the roof. He was very raw talent, and he got the job done really good. So I learned a lot from him. He ended up getting a job in Phoenix, and then I think he came back for a minute, but then he went out to Cali, to Sacramento, and so I was like, all right, I'm about to get the full-time job. It's going to be the Wild Wayne Show, and they gave it to somebody else. Wow. So I was kind of like, you know, fuck radio. I'm about yeah. to just stick with my, my Xavier thing, you know what I'm saying, and go get my degree. Uh, they brought in a guy named Mike Fox. I don't know if you're familiar with Mike Fox, but he used to work at BLS in New York. Yeah, he most was, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So he he's uh, but that was my who they brought in. And I learned a lot from him, you know what I'm saying? Although I was gonna sabotage it when he first came in. I was like, that's what's my job. Uh, but he ended up being a really cool guy. I learned a lot of professionalism from him mm. and the tech side. He was very tech-oriented. He was a great mixer and producer, plus a DJ. So I learned all kinds of things. And this was at the time when uh, we had the birthing, I'll say, of Cash Money. Yeah. That- music and No Limit, right? So Mike ended up taking a job in... Chicago at one of their first all hip hop stations. So he was downtown in the Loop, Michigan Ave, and he was doing his thing out there when he left. And I finally did get the spot in New Orleans when he pushed on. And I just kind of took the bull by the horns, you know, and, and rolled with it. And I've never looked back. Yeah. Uh, I've been number one since I've been on the air. I've developed my show, you know, in a number of ways, and it morphs over the over time. It's been a long time, but the biggest thing was I was entrenched with all of the artists that were the biggest in the industry. So people always ask, well, why didn't you leave? I was like, because we were the Mecca for music for a mm. really solid and long period of time. The, the 99 to 2000, like Juvie say, was real. No, it you was know serious. So, you know, Juvenile was Mystical, was the Birdman, it was the Hot Boys, it was Lil Wayne, it was Silk the Shocker, it was C-Murder, it was Master P, it was... Me, I don't know. The list goes on and on and on. And I was in the middle of all of that. And I had, I was doing a television show at the time as well. So, like, I was the go-to guy for every magazine, every interview, every documentary. So I've been on a lot, a lot of stuff. So that, that was kind of how all of that happened. And that entrenched me in a certain kind of way. You know, when Davey was there and then after he left, we pushed Bounce on the radio you know, which came from the streets, which is now has international acclaim. Davey had the the foresight to play this street music and it grew and obviously through me as a continuance of it, it has been really big. So that was like some of the things that were awesome about radio. I was doing television, that was a big thing. And then community was really my thing. Like, you know what I'm saying? And it has given me longevity in the game. I started my nonprofit in 2000, mm. right? So 20, 21 years old, 22 years old. And I did summer camps for the youth, you know what I'm saying? So I've had thousands of kids that I've done. And I've, uh, I used to do them at different community centers. But then eventually I graduated to Dillard University, 
and I did it at Dillard. So that was an awesome fit for what I was doing because the kids got a chance to see, you know, other kids not that much older uh, than them really, uh, no, you know, making that piece. Big, right. Well, we're going to get so, into, I, I want to, before you get into, I want to make sure we get into your community side and I want to, and the work you're doing. And obviously we're going to get into Katrina and what, where we are now and how that impacts. I want, I actually want you to kind of explain to the audience, because I think a lot of people who are listening to this may not understand the power of culture and music. You have been, because of where you've been, think about it, folks. I need to listen to this. In New Orleans, which is the, the epicenter of all music, I mean, R&B, jazz, hip-hop, you just name it. It is it is such a part of the culture here in New Orleans. Like, music is just central to everything, second line, even from our funerals to our, to if you're in the mosque, to your church, every aspect of New Orleans is music. And so Wild Wayne has sat right there over the past, almost 30 years, literally in the middle of watching that music from all sides. So I just want you to kind of explain just the power of culture and what it means for New Orleans. Uh, so culture, and, and I'll kind of give it my definition because sometimes people create their own little definitions to fit what they want. But culture is born from poverty, mm. first of all. And I don't think people put that in the equation because there's so many people trying to create culture and you don't create culture. It is right. It just is. It's an outlet for people that are impoverished. Um, so music, you know, these were not wealthy musicians. These were people that came from the gutter and made it to the butter. You know mm. what I'm saying? If it was jazz, you know, these were African-American musicians that were shunned by the uh, traditional jazz or other music formats, and they made something out of nothing. That's like a key to culture. If it's food culture, you know, it was a nothing or something. You know, slaves or immigrants were given the last of the last. You know, the people with money and power kept the best, but the people that didn't have nothing made something. That's right. You know? Okra was probably something that was brought by Africans and it was probably like food for cattle. Hmm. But we figured out how to do something with it. You know, if it was briskets, that was like the tough meat. Nobody wanted brisket, right? But we figured out how to smoke it and cook it. You know, red beans is always a good example in New Orleans because of what it came from. These beans were not, we don't want any beans, the aristocrats. But we figured out how we could make these little dry beans and cook them all day and have a pot of something to go to on on on, on uh, feeding a family of six to eight to ten for a couple of dollars. You know what I'm saying? Um, the Mardi Gras Indians, you know what I'm saying? Or the Black Masking Indians were uh, a culture. It's, it's part of culture in New Orleans, but that came from uh, a union between indigenous Indians and runaway slaves that came up with this new kind of thing, this thing, you know what I'm saying? And it was these mass Indians that were kind of paying tribute to those indigenous people that kind of helped some of the slaves escape persecution. Um, so culture, you know, it, it, it stems from, I say poverty, mm. and it becomes like this beautiful rose out of the concrete, you know what I'm saying? 
Um, I'm always leery of the culture vultures, though, mm. because it happens. And it's not just New Orleans. It happens everywhere. I mean, you know, I know you're probably going to ask about second lines, which is a big part of the culture in New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, and I'll give you just a quick example. Uh, a definition first followed by an example of what I'm talking about. So second lines are the second line of people that will be following the first line of people at a funeral. And the second line of people would usually be not direct family, but other people, outsiders that were at a funeral and decided that they wanted to make it a celebration of life versus uh, a pity party for the person that died. And eventually there became musicians involved and it became really long for people that had a big following or people that really cared for the, the deceased. So it's it's gone through some different iterations. And now, you know, it's one of those things, like I was saying with the culture vultures, there's second lines all over New Orleans for mm-hmm. weddings of very wealthy people or, you know, just uh, companies that are in New Orleans for business. Let's have a second line, you know. So I think it waters it down to a degree, but it is good for the culture bearers, per se, even though I don't think that they're getting paid what they should be getting paid. Like, uh, But that's kind of a part of, of it, too. So that's the culture. And people embrace culture in New Orleans. Like I said, it comes from an impoverished area. A lot of people are still improv- impoverished in New Orleans, you know, a couple of hundred years later, like some shit ain't never changed. You know what I'm saying? So it becomes like something that people gravitate towards. There's second lines during the second line season every Sunday and sometimes on other days on top of the Sundays. So uh, that that's where I would probably put culture in as as an explanation. And and how do folks then, particularly here in New Orleans, but obviously, you know, you're in music around the world and you've seen it. And how do we then, could we use culture in New Orleans, particularly to help us to create change? We help they help us even to to stay grounded. Help us to we, we use it to help help us to move. You know, when you mentioned the second line, like we had a second line yesterday when we were marching, and that 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 it, we we didn't have it at the beginning of the of the march, but when it comes in, it transforms everything. So how does how does how have we used that? Particularly, I'm kind of moving now into my in my post, Katrina. How have we used that to keep us going? How has culture music um, been used to keep us not just spirituals, but just all of our music to keep us going? Um, well, I think after Katrina um, and up until today, like so much was lost, right? So people lost their livelihoods, people lost lives, people lost property, people lost their way of life. People lost a lot of things. So the culture is the one thing that they know very well. In some, it's inherent. And they can always grasp upon to really go back to real New Orleans. So I, I think like it's been one of those things that uh, a lot of folks, it comforts them. You know, it's a comforting factor to get back to whatever that cultural aspect is. If it's the food, if it's the second lines, if it's uh, the the masking Indians, like those things, I think sometimes keep people sane. Like the one thing about New Orleanians, a lot of New Orleans folks before Katrina had never really ventured out much, mm. which is kind of a sad thing to, to say. 
But it, when you have a lot of impoverished people, like home is home. Like they weren't doing big traveling to the Caribbean or California or New York, unless maybe they had some relatives in those areas. A lot of New Orleans people had never left New Orleans before. Hmm. So when you are part of the biggest mass exodus of African-Americans in United States history, then that's the one thing that they can always grasp upon to, you know, feel like they're back at home if they're not. Or to make home feel like home again if they're back and things have changed. And things have clearly changed in New Orleans. From no, no, they they have, they have definitely clearly changed. And but when we get before we get to the change, I need you to tell people also because a lot of our listeners may not understand how, fra- frankly, black before New Orleans, before Katrina, and how the black culture, particularly how from the roots of Haiti, from the roots of the the indigenous, how that played in the Monica, how the indigenous people protected uh, those who were you know, who were slaves and, and, and were, were enslaved people, how that, how that played and how that continues to play a strong resilience and just that kind of mentality for particularly black people in New Orleans. I'm not exactly sure what your question is. So this, you know, there, there's a link between Haiti. There's a link between the, the people who have, who were fighting against, slavery and fighting to get off of the plantation in mm-hmm. in New Orleans. And there's just that link. So and that that those generations of generations of this struggle also is now kind of embedded into the people of New Orleans. That people may understand that you go other places, they just can not not say they get knocked over. Maybe <laughs> other places are right. strong too. But New Orleans is a strong sense of so- yeah. So I'll I'll say this, like um New Orleans is the northernmost Caribbean island. Come on right? now. Come on now. So <laughs> let's let's start there. And now if you've traveled and I, I I mean I love going to various Caribbean spots or whatever. And not just because of the beaches or, you know, the, the fancy stuff, but I, I, I go with kind of a different eye. Mm. And not not actually just the Caribbean, but also some other port cities across America, like Charleston. Um, but if you look at the architecture, like there's so many similarities, let's say to the French Quarter, right? To some of the foods that are eaten, to some of the patois even that is experienced and some of the experiences even the same. And if, if you'd never went to any of these other places, you probably would not understand the correlation. But, you know, so many of the people that came over here in the transatlantic slave trade landed in the Caribbean as a stopping ground where, you know, they kind of, I guess, broke the slaves is Mm -hmm. is what I've I've read. This was the breaking grounds before they brought them to the Americas or or to the United States. So, like, kind of automatically you're going to have these concentrations and similarities from Caribbean folks. So there is a strong Haitian relationship to New Orleans. There is a strong Jamaican relationship to New Orleans and some of the other various uh, Caribbean islands. So I think the struggles probably started there and just Mm. continued here. 
some of the traditions started there and came to New Orleans. Like, like, let's go back to the red beans and rice. You know, that's what I said earlier. But if you go to any Caribbean island, you're going to have peas, peas and rice, boy, on every plate. You know what I'm saying? It's it's part of the culture. Some of the, the, the fruits, you know, are the same thing. Some of the foods, like, you know, we got jambalaya, but there's other red rice in other, other countries or uh, rice dishes that incorporate seafood. You know what I'm saying? Same thing you have, the paella or whatever, in, in mm-hmm. some of the other places. You know what I'm saying? They're very similar. Um, so if you look at those things, just like we have the Mardi Gras, Indians, they got junk news in some places, mm-hmm. you know, which are, are very serious uh, or very similar, rather. So you just kind of got to look with a wider eye sometimes and you'll see that, you know, some of the struggles have been the same. Some of the cultural stuff is very, very similar. Um, uh, we just in New Orleans have taken various things and gave it our own flair. Mm. Or we, we've started these things like the jazz music or if it is the the culinary arts, like some stuff I think is derivative from other places. Some stuff was created here, but I, I think not only do you have those things, but a lot of those struggles are also things that have carried over to Louisiana, to New Orleans, to the States. No, nah, and, and I just want to say that, you know, many people don't understand the connection between slavery in the Caribbean and the United States, you know. And yeah, I went to Charleston, man, recently. And uh, I went to there as a slave museum um, that's in downtown Charleston. And uh, it was pretty enlightening to see some of the the old maps of mm-hmm. some of the slave trade. And, you know, they had some some rough documentation. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to see how many slaves either. A lot of them went to Charleston first, looked like, after they came from the Caribbean, which was a little bit weird uh, to go up there. And then, like, it's kind of like it was a system where they sent them down to various places. Because I think, uh, although New Orleans sold the most slaves, I don't think we imported the most slaves, mm. which is very interesting. Yeah. No, no, no. And that's, and if people understand, this is all a part of when it gets to, from Katrina and culture and who we are as a people, this history has to be understood. That people need to understand they were actually more people um, enslaved in the Caribbean and Latin America, um, than Brazil, the, yeah, Brazil. and that, and that's how Brazil, yeah, has the highest population of people of African descent outside yeah. of the continent of Africa. Right, and I thought that was that blew my mind. I saw that in Charleston. Another thing is very similar. Folks that are not from New Orleans, <laughs> when they come to New Orleans, a lot of times when they hear people talk, they're like. What did he just say? <laughs> he sounds like he's from the island. Not me. But a lot of New Orleans, we have a, a very distinctive speech pattern or patois. And it, it almost sounds like an, an island talk. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So that's just a, another, for yeah, example. That's another thing. So, yeah. so, so Wayne, this year, as you know, uh, marks 17 years since Hurricane Katrina, and one year since Hurricane Ida. Um, I got to make sure from a personal standpoint, before you get to the the larger macro standpoint, from a personal standpoint, what are your memories of Katrina? Where were you when Katrina hit? 
and this, you know, how do you feel? And 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 how how are you? I guess we'll make sure because you have to. People don't know you relive you relive this every seventeen every year for the past seventeen years. H- how are you, and how's your family? Um, you know, I really hated Katrina and still do. Like it, it changed so much in New Orleans. Like just so many things. Like. For me professionally, you know, uh, you know, all our artists were dispersed. You know, no one stayed. You know, that was the advent of Cash Money kind of moving to Miami. No Limit kind of moving to Baton Rouge. You know, these were safe spaces for them. And, you know, obviously, P was back and forth to Cali. You know, a lot of our local artists that were really making big strides, all of that was cut out. You know what I'm saying? Um and I say them as an example because, you know, it's what I do from a music standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint. Um, I don't know. It was, it's, you know, you most of my family didn't return, right? My mom and dad returned. But probably majority of the rest of my family moved to Houston, Atlanta, Baton Rouge, California, a lot of different places, but not here. <laughs> um, you know, some people passed, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it's just a lot of things that were really easy to do became not so easy anymore because so many people that you were very well connected with as a power broker in the city were gone and you have the influx of all these other new people that want to see the city shaped a different way um it, it just took a long time to really kind of bounce back you know i had a couple of properties at that time that you know had to be put back together um you know the club scene died which was a lot of money for me like it was a lot of money right because i was the guy right you know what i'm saying when it came to shows and entertainment like all of that kind of fizzled for a long time so you figure out ways to adapt and 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 keep yourself whole keep your family straight i my son was one at that time that's right you actually had a, a, a katrina baby yeah he was born in 04 my older son uh See, I guess he was nine then. So he wasn't able to come back. He had to move with his mom in Florida because um, New Orleans was towed up. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it was just, it was it was a terrible time, man. Like, don't let anybody sugarcoat that shit. Like, it was bad. But, you know, I'm a resilient person. I, I don't like to use that term loosely because a lot of people, oh, you're so resilient. But, like, I got it out the mud to start, so I'm going to figure it out, right? I'm going to figure out how to take that cliche, make a lemon into lemonade, and that's what I did. You know what I'm saying? I started a new talk show, you know, when I got back straight, which was called Real Talk. And I was able to get resources and information to the masses about all of the stuff that they weren't getting because it was in the newspaper. And black folks weren't reading newspapers, you know what I'm saying? Especially folks that couldn't read. You know, that's you know, we have we've always had low education standards, you know, in, in the modern era. So, and we've been at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to educational rankings. 
So a lot of folks didn't read that stuff. I was able to create that show and make things happen. But it took a while, man, to even figure things out on what was the next move, you know. And I was, like I said, I was blessed because I was already hustler of the year. You know what I'm saying? I was making bread in a lot of different ways. Uh, I also had a couple of businesses at that time, too. So I was doing a lot of things and I was able to rebound. I wasn't happy about it, but, you know, you get it how you live. I started doing clubs in Houston for about eight months. I was just flying back and forth doing the club. That's where all the New Orleans people was at. So it was called um, 504 Fridays. I used to do on on uh, at Club Maxi's out there. And we were getting 500 to 1,000 people every Friday because they wanted that New Orleans sound, feel, beat. They wanted Wild Wayne. I did every artist from New Orleans, every brass band I was eating on for that. So I figured out how to make it work, but not everybody did. You know what I'm saying? And it's kind of, it's not a great feeling, you know what I'm saying, when you hustling and you making it and you've kind of figured out a way to rebound, but you still see all these other people struggling, failing, you know, not knowing which way was up even in a new land. I I didn't stay. I, I didn't stay out there. Mm. Like I said, I flew back and forth from New Orleans to Houston. I had an apartment in Dallas. So, you know, that's kind of how I felt. Let me give you an example, though, of I think you want to know, like, how did it all happen and what happened when Katrina hit? Yeah. So, so, so. And, and I really want to know from, I mean, I mean you're giving, right now you're giving some insights. I don't know if people haven't probably even heard your viewpoint like this. I want you to give like this, like, could you give it, like this, give it, like how you feel like this and what it, and how it's, and what it meant to It the, sucks, bro. Yeah. Like, I, 17 years, years later, you would think, oh, well, shit, he should be over it by now. Like, it doesn't consume me. Don't get me wrong, because I have so many awesome things that continually shower me with with blessings. You know what I'm saying? So I always feel great about that. But when I do think about it, like it makes me mad all over again, Mm. because like if you were in the night war yesterday, I don't know if you ever did a tour that night. Or if you just go to where the breach is on the anniversary of Katrina. But I had people on Tennessee Street, you know, one of my one of my little DJs, you know what I'm saying? And that's the next street over from where the levee is. Um, I had some family members that stayed over there. All of that was obliterated. But if you drive around there now, 17 years later, there are more empty lots than houses back there. Yeah. That's crazy. 17 years later. You know, they won't write insurance policies out there for people. Some people never had the wherewithal to rebuild. A lot of people didn't even have the deeds to their houses because it was passed down in yeah. family. You know, so they all they know is we live here. Boom. You know, some of these uneducated people, they didn't really know. There was a, a patriarch in their family that was busting his ass every day, doing whatever he did. You know, if he worked on the river, if he did masonry, if he did carpentry, you know, whatever his job was, they bought these houses pretty cheap because nobody wanted to stay back there. But it was good for our people because we were able to build. A lot of people had building skills, you know, in the 40s or 50s or 60s, you know what I'm saying? And they just passed it down, you know? Okay, I I died, my, my kids got it. You know, a lot of that stuff wasn't documented. 
or it wasn't documented properly. And then all the vultures swooped in. Mm. And when you can't find the deed, somebody just going to take your shit. Yeah. That's, how, that's how it went. And now all these years later, there's still a lot of stuff has never been rebuilt back there and other parts of town, not just there. But that was ground zero. So that happened in the Seven Ward. You know, that's my part of town. So yeah. they still got a lot of spots that have not been rebuilt. Um, and it's not so much that hasn't been rebuilt part, but it's more of some of those spaces are only rebuilt now because of gentrification. So you got to think about it like this. If you or an investor from New York where the median price of a property is going to be 700000 right? You could, you could buy 10 of them in New Orleans sight unseen mm. for 75000 a piece. And that's what happened. They came in and swooped in and bought a lot of that stuff. It's still happening. And, you know, they built communities up, which you would think is an awesome thing. But when you build it up, and you bought a $75,000 property that now is going for 300 grand, right? You've built the community up, but you've also built a wall from people getting yep. in that are not employed uh, in, in a way where they can make that kind of bread. They got a low FICO score. They got low educational qualities that don't know anything about investment or finance. You know, um, then, you know, let's say Uptown, which was hugely gentrified, which was, they were every, I stayed Uptown, I stayed six of Barone. Like, right? and, and that was. And for folks who don't know, foot. just real quick, where, where's Uptown? Just real quick, so they can just kind of on their map in their head. So, I guess if for people that maybe have been to New Orleans before, let's let's say St. Yeah. Charles yeah. Avenue is, is a, a main a thoroughfare that a lot of folks know. Um, it's where the trolley cars roll. Yeah. <laughs> All my folks that just come as a tourist. Uh, but anyway, that, that's part of Uptown. There's some other parts of Uptown, too, like the 17 Ward, where Lil Wayne used to live. That, that That's a, a part off of Carrollton Avenue. Um, so that area, you know, it was a lot of hood hoods up there. You know what I'm saying? Hood, you ain't want to be caught in some of these areas. But, you know, these folks came in and bought it all up, and it's nicer neighborhoods now. So, you know, 17 years later, you also have all of these graduates from Tulane and Loyola, you know, that got family bread, you know, family wealth that that came to New Orleans and loved it. You know what I'm saying? And they can afford the $300,000 houses. So that that's something that happened as well. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of off track now, but that's no, what no, was no, on. No, 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 no. What you're talking about is very important because I think people need to understand how we got here, the pain behind it. I guess that leads to the actual commemoration, what we, which you are part of. You've been a part of for the beginning. We've got to give a big shout out to Sus Four Five, um, you know, for just what he has continued to do with, with his work, the Hip Hop Caucus team, and and all the groups who've been a part of the Katrina commemoration. And so I just actually that leads right into, you know, because that's the pain. But then we every single year we have this Katrina commemoration event. Um, and that's for the greater New Orleans community. And I guess for me, for you, is that, you know, what does that mean? You know, you know, could we do it every single year? What does it mean for us to have this Trinicoration event? You know, and that also from what you're saying, that the event started, it starts every year with a healing ceremony in the Lower Ninth Ward. And so what's the significance of that and just um, that 
being in the ninth ward and just, you know, kind of tell folks like what happens at that ceremony. Well, kudos to you, first of all, because I, I thought uh, the, the spirit that channeled through you yesterday was was very um, on point and impactful. And I could tell like you were just a vessel because it didn't look like you had anything written down on paper. Like, I, it came from the heart and the soul. Like, and, and I think it was it was it was very uh, impactful on, on how you started. No, and, and I you. think it set the tone for the day. You know what I'm saying? Um, 17 years later, uh, I, I still think it's an important thing for us to do uh, because quite often, if you don't continue to apply pressure and keep these things going, they erase it from the historical narrative, like almost as if it didn't ever happen. And that's the furthest from the truth. Mm. Just if you look at the the names that were behind you when you spoke, it was, you know, that was dozens of names, but it was nearly 2,000 people that lost their lives in Katrina. You know, when you see these floods in the Midwest or whatever, or, you know, that happened and they say, oh, yes, you know, 12 people died. And of course you feel sorry. You don't want any lives to be lost, but that hasn't happened. 2,000 people? Mm. The, 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 the forest fires in California, you know, when they get on there, they say, we lost 14 people. Uh, that's terrible. All 14 of those lives were valuable. Don't get me wrong. We lost 2,000 people. And then you had 100,000 people displaced. Like, that's crazy. Hmm. And to just just think that you can just kind of push it under under the rug on something that was not necessarily uh, uh, a Mother Nature event, something that was in what many people believe something that was orchestrated to flood an area or a city for the grand reset. I know that's that's a tough one, man. I think you have to continue to do this Katrina march to keep it on people's minds. And I also think moving forward, especially going toward the 20 year mark, yeah. like we got to apply some more pressure on the people of the city to become participants um, and, and understand the gravity of the situation. I also think uh, something that we discussed is potentially making the Katrina anniversary, a local holiday um, for, for folks to have in remembrance um, and, and I think, like I said to you yesterday, you have to figure out how to involve some of the younger generation so they can understand how serious this event was and how it reshaped the history and the direction of New Orleans. Because more than anything that I know of personally in my lifetime or anything else that I've read about. Like, I don't think anything else has transformed New Orleans into the direction that it's going like Katrina did. That's right. No, that's facts. No, and I think so. Let's talk about that, actually, moving forward. Because I think that we did talk about, so we know for folks who are sustainably skipping it, we 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 know that this is <laughs> Katrina 17, but we just had a, we, we were part of it. Then next year is Katrina 18, and then it's 19. We're not skipping 18 and 19. So we need folks to know. We definitely want right. you to be a part of <laughs> Katrina 18 and 19. 
what 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 Wayne is saying here, though, is that we've noticed, and this is very important, particularly some of our friends who have been supporting this process, that around those those certain years, like obviously year five or year ten or year fifteen, for some reason people show up in bigger numbers and they become they they support, and sometimes it's just the hip hop caucus and a few other groups that support in between the years. But then in those big years, people show up. And we, we, we appreciate that. We want y'all to show up. I'm, I'm going to be coming to some of y'all to make sure we can show up and then we can do some things. But what, what Wayne is saying here is the vision move forward is that how can we use this moment that was in chaos to build community? How can we continue to build this so that we can? So one of the things what we've been talking about was that next year, maybe, doing a film festival, because we want to give a big shout out. If you have not seen Katrina Babies, Please take time to watch that. Actually, it was a young brother from Dillard and just a young filmmaker. And and you can check out Wild Wayne has a podcast that he does, and he interviewed him on the podcast. And you can check out Wayne's podcast of that interview, right, on that process. Yeah. 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 Uh, his name is Ed Buckles Jr. Um, uh, really bright mind and great eye behind the camera and great storyteller as well, you know. He was able to see the vision, you know what I'm saying, as as a youngster. You know, I think he started this film actually seven years ago um, and he's put it in over time. I think Time Warner and um, HBO Max have put it out, you know, on the eve of of Katrina's anniversary. I think he also just did an interview with Soledad O'Brien, which is a really good interview as well. Um, but, yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's important. like to take a look at that because one of the, the, the key factors that came from that particular documentary is that the trauma that so many young people experienced was cast aside. Mm. And that whole word, well, they're resilient. You know, I think they pushed that on, especially folks from New Orleans, so that they can move on. How do you know that those people are resilient? How do you know? You don't. You ain't never asked any of those people how they feel. Like, you asked me, how did I feel about it? In my interview with E. Buckles for my podcast, that was the first time I think I had ever expressed what I, what I told you. This many years later. But the trauma that was experienced by so many of these kids that were five, six, seven, eight, nine during that time has been a powder keg for them moving on when it's never been addressed. And them kids blow up, you know, pressure bust pipes, as they say. Um, it, it's really, um, it's really sad. And I said this as well in my other interviews that you had all of these federal dollars that were allocated to New Orleans in surrounding areas for medical. And there was never a wholesale um, psychological evaluation of young people to find out where they were and how you could help them find their way in this wilderness post-Katrina. So you're going to have some of the repercussions at this point because you failed to do it and nobody knows where the money went. Hmm. Man, I can't believe how the fast this time goes. I just want to make sure people understand that we we we're gonna keep doing the Katrina 
Formation. So next year we will be between 18 and 19. We're going to do some things as Wayne. We might, we, we're going to try to do some things right around some films or maybe some other things. We don't know yet, but we're going to stay tuned to that. Um, and that, but we definitely going to get big for Katrina 20 because that's going to be a, that's a huge, huge moment. Wayne, as, as we can bring this, bring this conversation, this which goes always so fast, man. You are just an amazing brother, man. I'm gonna tell you that right now. You've done so much. I didn't even get to. First of all, I got gotta get to this before you get to that. I can't let you go without. I, you you growing stuff now, man. So <laughs> this is a, this is a slash environmental cool show. We do our culture and climate and all that kind of stuff. So you actually growing stuff. And and so tell me, tell me, let's talk about that real quick. What are you what are you growing? Actually, next to you, in, in, in your in your lot next to your house. So uh, <laughs> I have turmeric, um, sweet potatoes, cucumbers, uh, lettuce, tomatoes, ginger, uh, okra, and that's about it right now. But that's a bunch of stuff uh, and some gourds. They have gourds growing. Those are now for eating. But I also got some chicken. I got like eight chickens. I had some goats. I just got rid of them. They were too destructive. Uh, but it was born out of the pandemic. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, I thought, because I have one of my cousins, he works for Facebook, so he's in Singapore. Uh, so he was telling me about this, and his mom was telling me about this this thing that was coming in 2020 that was already kind of exploding in the Asian countries. And, you know, we they failed to give us this information, right? You know, uh, they didn't tell us anything about this. I was getting it from them because they were over there. They were already wearing masks and all of this stuff. So I was like, well, if and they did real lockdowns. We did fake lockdowns. You can't do a real lockdown and have Club Walmart open. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, so, uh, you know, gas stations were still open. Supermarkets were still open large concentrations of people we were never going to get rid of it initially so i was like i'm gonna need some of my own self-preservation going on here if they shut it down for real so i bought some chicken i was like i'm gonna have eggs and i started growing stuff because i had all of this empty space and it was just grass so i started growing stuff and you know what i started posting these little videos and it got other people kind of riled up and like i can do that too Cause I'm tired of cutting the grass. I'm gonna get this grass out of here and use it for, for some some growing. And it just kind of became a passion of mine. So I'm really working on some grants right now to try and get from the USDA just to kind of further some educational stuff um, when it comes to growing. Because you can grow in very small spaces. Right. You can grow in, in a, you know if you have a little balcony at an apartment with with bucket growing or pot growing. Uh, if you got some space, you can grow that way, and, and you can have some some of your own sustainability. Also, like with these educational things, that's that's to teach people how to do it on their own. But also, I want to get some participation. Like I said, there's all these dead lots, empty lots. You know what I'm saying? Uh, try and really figure out some community gardens. Which, from what I understand, from people that have done it before, it's not an easy task because people don't stay the course. But I know I give away a gang of stuff. You know what I'm saying? I give away bags of okra or I give away eggs to little old ladies in the neighborhood or whatever that I know don't get out just because I have abundance. So, like, it's cool. It's cool. Well, I, know, I know I know I know what I'm coming to next time for some eggs or some and some and some. But come on, man. Yeah, um, yeah it's facts. Oh, I'm coming by. Yeah, no, I know. Come, I listen, I listen. That's what we're going to do. 
And look, I'm a foodie too, so I get down in the kitchen, bro. I got oh, you. Oh, I listen. I'm, come on now. You, <laughs> I did a, I did a farm the table for Father's Day. It was called it was the farm the table, the celebration of fatherhood. So it was really dope. You know what I'm saying? I had the goats running around, chickens running around, but we did like shrimp and grits. We did smothered okra. We did the chicken and waffles and. It was just really good stuff for all the dads, you know what I'm saying? But it was a lot of stuff that I grew here at at my little seven wall farm. Not yeah. everything, but a lot yeah. of it. You know, somewhere you talking about is real important. I just, you know, because we talk about this also. We know that sometimes the climate movement can be seen as a predominantly white movement. But you know, when when we talk within our culture, I listen to you. I mean, you're literally gardening. You're being sustainable. You're literally eating. You know, you're doing things. Other artists are doing the same thing in in the culture. You know, no, that's amazing to see a Drika. You know, Drika Gates, Kelly doing a lot of really cool stuff. Rick Ross has uh, went into some husbandry and and cattle and what have you. Like that's really it's really exciting to see to me. Yeah, no, it's crazy, and and I just think that that's the. I want. I think for me, this is my one of my visions, and I just say this: my visions is, and we're gonna. I'm probably gonna come and get a camera next time and come with you in your kitchen and garden. We're gonna probably have to because we we probably gonna show that because I mean I think that people they have a different idea of what it means to be sustainable and what it means to be environmentally conscious. And we talked about the other day, but it really is our story. And it really is what we've done forever. Um, and so it, you- it's, it's also therapeutic. Mm. So I think people don't, you know, some people just say, oh, it's grow, 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 green, green, green. But like your hands in that soil, you out outside in that sun getting that vitamin D and you seeing like the progress from a seed to a plant to a fruit, like. That shit is therapeutic. Like, you know what I'm saying? With so much craziness going on in the world all the time, with the consistent news cycle that never stops, with all the chaos going on, like that little uh, oasis, you know what I'm saying? It's, It's therapeutic. And I think some people don't understand how therapeutic it is. Some people are like, oh, it's bugs, or all the plants are gonna die, or oh, it's so hot, man. It'll give you not not just food for you to eat, but it's really food for the soul. Mm. Really is. Well, Wayne, how can people follow you and support you right now? Um, social media is real easy. Um, Wild Wayne on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Um, Wild Wayne five hundred four on TikTok. That that that's uh like some good spaces and I got various links on there, link in bio if folks wanted to follow what I'm doing. I kind of post more stuff on Facebook because initially it was a little more inviting the people, but ironically now that I've started posting more on Instagram, there's a you realize that there's number one a lot of people that are doing what you're doing, believe it or not, and number two there's a lot more people that are really genuinely curious about it. And want to know more, or or really feel empowered by it. I, 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 it was kind of weird because you know you think most of the people are about the flash and bang on on Instagram and and the real sexy or, or titillating things, but like they kind of like this kind of thing. You know, when I sometimes I put my my cooking videos up too, 
Uh, and people were like, man, like I did this goat stew the other day. People were like, goat, ah! Uh, <laughs> well, I got it from Black Farm, you know what I'm saying? And I was supporting what they were doing. And uh, and Buku, people was like, I need a recipe. I was like, gosh, I just kind of cook. I just kind of cook, but it, it's like, it's different, bro. And nobody ever thought it like, you're the hip hop guy. Like, but you know, you got to be diversified and rounded and we got to get our people to do more and just shake their ass on, on Instagram or, or be condescending on, on social media. That there's so much more positive stuff out there. There's so much more positive stuff, man. My brother. Well, I love you, man. Thank you, man, for being you, man. I, I love pre- you back. Yeah. I appreciate you. And that's our guest today. He is radio personality, cultural influencer, and farmer. Wow, Wayne. And it's I, your boy, Wow, <laughs> Wayne. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host <laughs> of The Coolest Show. Thank you, my brother. All right, we're going to holler, baby. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to repeat. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.